our stereotypes about animal species have an impact on how we feel and how we behave toward distinct animal species. This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Ryan Watkins. And I'm Doug Lay. Today, in episode 71 of Parsing Science, we're joined by Veronica Siviano from the Department of Social Psychology and Methodology at the Autonomous University of Madrid. She'll discuss her research with Susan Fisk from Princeton University into applying social psychology to understand why we treat some animals as pets, but others as dinner. Here's Veronica Siviano. Hi, I am Veronica Sevillano. I'm a social and environmental psychologist at the Psychology College in Universidad Autónoma de Madrid. I was raised in the suburbs of Madrid, Spain, and during my childhood, I was uh, very close to the environment in general and to rural areas in Toledo in particular. I was a scout. I studied psychology and I earned my PhD in Complutense University in Madrid on environmental concern and basic social psychological processes. After my PhD, it was clear to me that I had to pursue a postdoc abroad and my specialization at that time was in environmental psychology, but I wanted to be focused on basic social psychology. So I contacted Professor Susan Fisk at Princeton, and we applied for postdoc Fulbright scholarship. As a social psychologist, Veronica studies why people behave in the ways we do when other people are involved. So Doug and I were curious in learning how she became interested in applying social psychology to conservation biology, a multidisciplinary field which focuses on the loss of biodiversity that happens due to human-animal conflict. The connection between conservation biology and social psychology was based in the idea that a stereotype construct that is very popular in social psychology may be very useful for conservation biology also. Conservation biology studies beliefs about animal species, but they are referred to as attitudes, not the stereotypes. And we were really surprised about the fact that conservation biology doesn't pay attention to stereotypes because we think that is very, very useful for understanding how people think about animals. Uh, so our idea was that in the same way that we hold stereotypes about social groups, immigrants or women or whatever, we also do for animals. And our stereotypes about animal species have an impact on how we feel and how we behave toward distinct animal species. So I think it have a place, a role, in how we research um, on this topic. Anytime we first talk with a guest, Ryan and I start out by asking if they've had the chance to listen to a previous episode, as we think it gives a pretty good sense of what to expect about the show's format. When we asked Veronica, she told us that she listened to our discussion with Susan Gelman, whose research is into the use of generic language in scientific communication. We spoke with her back in episode 63. Veronica's manuscript also addresses the problems that can follow from using generic language, in her case, referring to animals generically. 
instead of referring to specific animal species. So we were interested in hearing her thoughts about how her and Susan's work might share some unanticipated commonalities. Yeah, I think it's pretty related. <laughs> I thought that when I was listening uh, to Professor Yellman, yeah, for sure. Yeah, there is a problem because in European social surveys and surveys in general, they are asking about animals in general. You have to make statements or you have to answer questions about the animals in generic terms. What do you think about animals in the law system or whatever? But we know that there are huge differences between between animal species. It's not the same to be a dog or to be a snake. It's completely different. So we are assuming that maybe people are very, very worried about animal concern or animal rights when they are thinking of companion animals, pets, for example. But more conservative people, they may think about rats or mice when they are thinking about animals. So the, the answers are completely different in meaning. So if you, if you think about animals, for sure you are going to, to, to see that people tend to think about animals at the collective or species level, right? This is like the notion of a species is very close to a group notion, right? So if we, if we think what is a social group in social psychology, we define uh, groups as units or uh, coherent entities that has in biological terms an essence. That is the case for animal species. So they have a biological essence and we perceive it as unitary. So it's easier to think uh, for, for, for a biologist, it's easier to think on animals and species as social group more than uh, for a social psychologist, because it's less challenging. Veronica and Susan's manuscript points out that the conflicts which groups of people experience can be categorized in one of two ways, either as realistic conflict or as the result of a conflict that's symbolic. Realistic conflicts can threaten the resources that are available to the groups we belong to and stand to endanger our very well-being, while symbolic conflicts threaten not our lives, but rather the worldviews, values, and beliefs of the groups to which we belong. While symbolic conflict with other people doesn't necessarily pose a threat to lives and limbs, when humans and animals have symbolic conflicts, be it through commercial livestock or wildlife hunting, it often does. So Doug and I were curious to hear Veronica's thoughts about this distinction. Well, the idea about analyzing uh, human-animal conflict from an um, intergroup approach was that when we were, were reading a lot of articles about uh, these conflicts in conservation biology, we found that we were reading um, basically the same um, ideas that in social psychology uh, were present in the intergroup relations approach. So, for example, conservation biology um, conceptualized human-animal conflicts um, as um, conflicts for competition for resources. And there is exactly the same 
that social psychology does for uh, human human conflicts, right? So uh, you you perceive a threat from another group because your resources or your well-being are are in danger in the same way that you perceive that your resources or your well-being is a threat by an animal. It's exactly the same. That is realistic conflict for social psychology and the name for conservation biology was resources conflict, a conflict uh, over the resources. And the other point was that something that we called in social psychology symbolic conflict that deals with how world views uh, of individuals are uh, threatened by other groups is an idea that is behind some psychological factors studied in conservation biology, like identity or uh, values, for example. So there is a clear parallel between both disciplines. So we have to, <laughs> to, to work together to make sense to all of that, because we know things about the differential uh, importance of uh, realistic or symbolic uh, threats. For example, in social psychology, symbolic threats are more important. Veronica in Susan's chapter contends that distinct species of animals function as social groups. Such a point of view requires attributing some of the distinctive qualities of human social groups to animal species. Now, you might think that only naturalists or animal rights advocates hold such perspectives, but the tone of her in Susan's chapter doesn't take such sides. We mentioned this to Veronica and asked her thoughts on what differentiates conservationists from speciesists. I'm happy that you said that because we, we really wanted that. We are not very pro-animal people. We are studying social perception of animals. Okay, but we, are, we don't want to make strong claims because we don't want to say that every possible negative behavior that an, an animal has to, to suffer or has to deal with is discrimination. That is a, a, a very broad question, maybe a political one, or more related with sociological and policy questions. So we want it to be, to be very neutral. And so this is coming from, from conservation biology mostly. But some people uh, has um, a value orientation that is um, cooperative with uh, wildlife, and other has a more utilitarian way to see wildlife. So they are, for example, the utilitarian or doministic uh, orientation is more prone to to hunt and to see problematic wildlife if they are a burden for social style or the identity of the group. For example, mutualism or more cooperative people, they don't want to, to kill or to, to hunt animals. And they prefer to observe animals and to pay for conservation practices, for example. 
yeah, so values are really important for how we uh, deal with you know, wildlife. Veronica and Susan used a questionnaire to identify and categorize people's attitudes toward various animal species. This survey was originally developed to validate a conceptual model of Susan's about how our perceptions of the warmth and confidence of different groups of people can elicit either pity or admiration of them, or envy and contempt. So we asked Veronica to tell us more about the model, as well as how it can also be applied to our perceptions of animal species. Well, we based our research on stereotype content model. There is a model which identified two basic dimensions for how we think about groups and persons. Those two dimensions are warmth and competence. And warmth is related with the perceived intentionality of a group or a person, good or bad intention. And competence refers to abilities and capacities that the person or the group have to achieve their goals. So these two dimensions are the content of these stereotypes that we hold about groups or person, and we applied this model to animals. So stereotypes or content of the stereotype is related with the emotion that we feel about the animals or groups or person depending on the worth and competence dimensions and the emotions are related with the behavioral tendencies that we show uh, about distinct animal species based on a stereotype content. So it's like a chain between stereotypes, emotions or prejudice, and behavioral tendencies or discrimination. So, for example, wolves in our model are intelligent animals, but also are very aggressive animals. So they are competent, but also they are cold. So those animals, predators in this case, are associated with active harm, like killing or hunting, but also with passive facilitation, that is, conservation and management. So those animals are exposed to both uh, behavioral tendencies of human beings. While writing my dissertation, one of the most useful books I happened across was called The Power of the 2x2 two two Matrix, which essentially breaks down much of our lives into discrete, two-variable questions. And one of the things I very much gravitated toward in Veronica and Susan's chapter was that it does the same, but with regard to the question of our social perceptions of animals. So we asked Veronica to explain how her and Susan's 2x2 two two Matrix works to do so. So in 2016, we were researching about different types of stereotypes and we use the stereotype content model and we adapted the stereotype content model to 25 uh, animal species. So the idea was to test if the different spaces for the stereotype content model were found. And we found four types of stereotypes that were very apparent. One of them was 
subordination stereotype for mostly prey animals such as cows or rabbits or hamsters for example and the other stereotype was threat or stereotype mostly for predators so in this group of animals were tigers bears lions or leopards uh, so those animals are are different animals but are very similar for most people so they are similarly perceived and the third type of stereotype was the content stereotype mostly for rats or snakes mice chickens or lizards lizards sorry and the last one was the protective stereotype and that was for pets Veronica and Susan also applied another 2x2 two two framework over the four cells of the stereotype content model, essentially creating a 2x2x2 two by two by two conceptual model. We were curious to hear how this second framework, called the bias map, helped them gain a better understanding of how the stereotypes that we hold about those outside of our groups can help explain the actions we take towards or against them. We'll hear what she had to say after this short break. Thousands of conversations about scholarly content happen online every day. At Opmetric, we track a range of sources to capture and collate this activity, helping you to monitor and report on the attention surrounding the research you care about. Do you know who's talking about your research? For a free, visually engaging and informative view of the online activity surrounding your scholarly content, visit opmetric.com products. Now back to passing science. Here again is Veronica Sebiano. I didn't mention before, but we based our approach in stereotype content model, but also in the bias map. But of course, we had to adapt the bias model to to the animals, because, for example, the same emotions that we feel about humans are not suitable for some animal species. For example, I'm thinking about the emotion of envy. We don't feel envy for animal species. Well, yeah, maybe someone very, very close to nature in a very high connectivity with nature or something like that, maybe may feel some envy, but most people don't feel envy toward animals. So we couldn't find envy or for example, we didn't find also compassion toward animals. That was very clear in the model. But we, for example, found indifference, fondness, disgust, and threat and awe. Indifference for high worth, low competence animals. And those are cows, or rabbits, and all of that and fondness for pets and also horses and elephants but the threat and all emotions are related with predators and disgust is only for low competence low worth animals so we change a little bit the bias map with the research of course and we we found these four emotions that are a little more basic than envy 
or compassion. So that that is for the part of the emotion or prejudice. Uh, and the other part is the behavioral tendencies related with different uh, animal species. And the bias map uh, by Susan Cady made a very clear statement about what are the dimensions important for how we deal with social groups. And Cady proposed uh, two-dimensional behavioral tendencies. One is positive or negative behaviors, that is balance, positive or negative, or facilitation. And the other is intensity. So a behavior may be more or less intense or more or less direct. And we found the same adapted, of course. Having established the general aims of their research, Brian and I asked Veronica to explain the objectives of the three studies which they carried out to answer the broader question of why we love some animals and exploit others. So the first study tested the adapted stereotype content model for animals. So we found a stereotype com- content model space for 25 animal species. Some were high, others were low in worth, some others were high or low in competence. So we found four groups of animal species. And then in the second study, we applied the bias map to these animal species. And then in the, in the third study, we relate social groups with animal species. So we wanted to see if social groups that were perceived in any specific way in the stereotype content model are related to animals that are perceived in the same way in the stereotype content model. It's similar to the video game Animal Crossing, that you get an idea about the role of an animal because of the job that he is doing. So there is a correspondence between how we perceive social groups and how we perceive animals. Doug and I followed up by asking Veronica to tell us more about the modified questionnaire that she and Susan used to explore how the content of our stereotypes about animal species parallels the stereotypes that we hold about other groups of people. So you ask participants to rate a list of animals, more or less 10 or 13 animals, and we ask about friendliness. To what extent do you think that these the following animals are friendly, are mm, intelligent, are skillful, are trustworthy, uh, are well-intentioned, are competent also? And they have to rate each animal in a liquor scale. So after that, we, we analyzed the responses using cluster analysis that allows to group in a graph the different animal species that are perceived similarly after some statistical criteria, of course, and all of that. Um, we draw the, the position of the different species in a graph. 
We wrapped up our conversation with Veronica by asking what she has planned next with regard to bringing social psychology and conservation biology into closer alignment, and perhaps creating greater cooperation between social psychologists and conservation biologists themselves. I am trying to make connections with biologists because I think um, we need some biologists in the group uh, for expanding the research. And I really wanted to follow with uh, more applied area because, uh, for example, in USA, in North America, it's very common to research people in the rural areas through a focus group or through participatory uh, activities for including rural people in, in decisions that politics have to make about animals conservation or environmental conservation. But here in Spain is not a developed field. And through all our research, I think we could uh, develop a protocol for working with communities, trying to manage conflicts in a very participatory way. So that is for an applied side. And the other thing we are, we are working on is the variables that predict how worth and competence is perceived in animals because the stereotype content model proposed to structural variables, there is a status and cooperation. So uh, those groups that are very cooperative in a society are perceived as warmer and those groups high in status in the society are perceived as high in competence. And right now we are collecting data about cooperation and competition and status of different animal species and we have to look if they are related with competence and worth. That was Veronica Seviano discussing her manuscript with Susan Fisk, Animals as Social Groups, an Intergroup Relations Analysis of Human-Animal Conflicts, published in the book Why We Love and Exploit Animals, in November 2019 by Routledge. You'll find a link to their chapter at parsingscience.org e71, along with transcripts, bonus audio clips, and other material we discuss during the episode. As many of us continue sheltering in place during the coronavirus, Maybe giving a listen to some of our previous episodes might bring a little respite during these trying times. You can check out any of our past 70 episodes at parsingscience.org episodes. Also, Doug and I highlight our newly booked guests in a weekly email digest at parsingscience.org digest. And we welcome you to join in the conversations by submitting any questions you would like us to ask them at parsingscience.org upcoming. Next time in episode 72 of Parsing Science, we'll talk with Akshu Rosborn from the Wildlife Conservation Research Unit at Oxford. She'll talk with us about her research, which found that improvised snares in Laos have completely decimated the wild tiger population, a species whose worldwide population is now estimated to be around 200. Poachers will put their hands on every single piece or every single animals they can get from the area because the bushmeat demand is very high, especially in China. It would still be a challenge for any 
species population in this protected area as well as any other habitats in Laos. We hope that you'll join us again.